Hello, I'm Mary Nanyan, RSA's current Medical Student Council Chair. Welcome back to our podcast, Empower, a social EM series where humanity meets medicine. And I'm Anantha Singaraja, your current RSA Secretary Treasurer. For our second episode, we'll be covering an important topic near and dear to our guest speaker's heart. I am excited, excited to welcome back social EM expert, Dr. Victor Cisneros, who is actually one of my attending physicians, and he is the GME Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at Eisenhower in Southern California. Welcome back, Dr. Cisneros. Hey guys, happy to be here. Happy to be back at this amazing podcast. Dr. Cisneros, can you tell us a little bit about how you were drawn into social EM? What brought you into this sector of emergency medicine? Well, I think, I mean, a short, a long story uh, done briefly is it's basically my background. You know, I've been doing social EM before it was actually called social EM. I come from a very underserved uh, background. I'm a, um immigrant myself. I was born in Guadalajara, Mexico, came here when I was two years old. So I have myself faced, you know, many of the social determinants of health kind of growing up. And so when I applied to medical school, I kind of knew that I wanted to do an MDP, uh, MPH. And so um, I was part of the Prime LC program at the University of California, Irvine, which focuses on working with the Latino uh, patient population. And um, throughout my education, I just saw the different, you know, um, disparities that patients face, not just inside the hospital, but outside. And so I was very kind of drawn to this area of public health. And now it's become a subspecialty within our emergency medicine world. And so that's kind of where it started. It started where, and I was doing my MPH program and uh, I was introduced by Dr. Handler, who was the public health officer of Orange County at the time. And he introduced the idea of food insecurity. And I just was drawn to it. And could you uh, go into further detail on why food insecurity specifically? Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, during my MPH, I kind of learned that Astonishingly, in an area like Orange County, which considers to be very affluent in California, a one out of four children were food insecure, were going hungry every night. And I realized how important nutrition, obviously, most of us uh, wouldn't argue with that, that is part of health. You know, it's important with our development. And if you're a kid and you're trying to develop appropriately, nutrition is very essential. Also, if you're a college student, you're trying to learn something, a subject, and you're hungry and you're worried about paying the bills or putting food on the table, it's going to be hard for you to kind of succeed. So it really affects uh, many aspects uh, of our um, healthcare system and in general, just our living situation. Absolutely. And actually, I think it was during your presentation, during our orientation, you talked about um, a number of UC students who reported uh, being hungry or not having enough money for food. Do you remember that statistic you told us? Yes. Um, You know, astonishingly at the University of California, which is a big university system in California, um, there, some of the statistics that came out is that about almost 50% 50% of um, patients of college students are arguably food insecure. And that was obviously there is some transient food insecurity in there, meaning, you know, they weren't food insecure when they were living with mom and dad, and now they're a college student kind of living in a dorm and their food is not suffice to their needs. And so, um, you know, food insecurity is definitely a real issue with our college students. And so, um, even graduate students, which considered, you know, medical students and PhD students, uh, the statistics pretty up there, pretty astonishing. 
I loved hearing that when you uh, told us, shared that statistic during orientation, because when I went to UCLA, I definitely struggled with food insecurity. I was on the lowest meal plan. I was working. And I remember coming home from work on a weekend, um, looking forward to the cup of noodles I had saved for that. That was my weekend meal. And then seeing that my roommate had ate it and just breaking down into tears and not understanding why I was at a university program, but still struggling to to eat. And so when you had mentioned that during orientation, I was like, yes, this is something that is very real that people don't realize is happening and could be happening to your neighbor, your friend, uh, your colleague. And so uh, I definitely see that passion and realize that more people need to realize that this is a thing. A hundred percent. I feel like, you know, no matter what, you know, um, from what avenue of life you're coming in, if your parents are affluent or they're not, many of our college students are suffering this and we expect them to exceed academically yet, you know, they're worried about what they're going to eat or their next meal, which is very unreasonable because like you said, in many of the meal plans won't go that long way. And not everybody can afford a meal plan either. So depending on your background. So this is a very real issue. And now some universities have um, addressed this by putting food banks. I know the University of California, Irvine, when I was there as a medical student um, and a resident, uh, has started putting a food bank on campus where uh, students can come and have access to this food. And it's pretty good quality food too. It's uh, repurposed food many times from uh, grocery stores nearby. And um, it's been uh, very successful. For our listeners who, you know, may or may not have varying degrees of background in nutrition, could you simply define like what, what food insecurity is and what a food desert is just so when we use these terms later on in the podcast, um, people know um, what we're talking about? Yeah, no. Um, and there's various definitions, you know, obviously it's very important to define the issue. And uh, one of the more generic definitions that I think applies to many situations is the lack of consistent access to enough food for every person in a household uh, to live an active and I think important healthy life, you know, and I think that's the key. Um, it's not just giving people access to food, but it's quality of food in addition to that. And so they could be healthy. You know, you don't want to give the diabetic a bunch of sugary, carby foods, you know, and then, you know, part of this definition is that also it has, you know, many of these family members, um, it's a temporary situation. It's a transient situation. You know, food insecurity is not a, you know, um, a black and white. There's a lot of gray zone. There's a lot of families are transiently food insecure, meaning they're a paycheck away or they're transiently food insecure. Maybe they have a little bit of meals here and there, and then they go back into food insecurity. So there's not one definition, but it's, if you could define it as literally, I would say it's the lack of consistent food per household in order to have an active, healthy life. Yeah, that definitely makes sense because, you know, it's not only not having enough food, but not also having the correct type of food, you know, the, the lack of healthy food that you mentioned. And um, a lot of studies have shown that there's not only a link between uh food insecurity and the prevalence of disease, but also it makes the management of those diseases harder. So for example, like just like the diabetic you mentioned, if they don't have healthy food, or if you have someone who's recovering from cancer or some other chronic disease, not having nutritional food is really going to impact their health outcome. And I know that, you know, food insecurity is kind of your special niche in social EM. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the different types of projects you've done or what you're currently working on. 
Yeah, no, 100%. And to go back to the last question, I just wanted to really define uh, food desert uh, before I move to this question is, you know, the food desert is an area, a geographical area where they lack quality food. It's not always access because you hit it right, the nail on the head earlier when you said about the quality too, in addition to, you know, um, tailoring it to our medical patients. But in addition, you know, many times, um, the causes or the root causes of food insecurity is poverty, unemployment, low income, you know, lack of affordable health care, uh, lack of, uh, you know, many rooted, deep connected issues. And so if you're in a community where you don't have the Trader Joe's or the Whole Foods or many of these top quality, I guess, grocery stores where you they have nice produce or vegetables, what are you going to eat? You're going to eat the fast food. You're going to eat the 99 cents cheeseburger that is a lot cheaper than buying a, you know, a salad that might cost you $14. And so I think the the idea of a food desert in my own definition is these geographical areas where people don't have access to quality food, let it be fruits, vegetables, you know, and some of the projects I think that I'm currently motivated in doing is, is a educating my current residents and fellow colleagues on the importance of food insecurity first and, you know, disseminating this information in addition to developing screening tools, you know, using tools that are already in place and are validating to look at the incidence and prevalence of this food insecurity when it comes to the emergency department, because I think in my humble opinion, the emergency department is a great place to start. You know, we see the pediatric patient to the OBGYN patient to the a geriatric patient to the trauma patient, we see what the closest thing to the, uh, what represents the community and uh, what surrounds. And so arguably, if you want to look for areas that would be more representative to your community, I think the emergency department is a phenomenal place. And so I've implemented these tools when I started as a fellow and the county where I trained in Orange County. Now I'm in uh uh, Palm Spring area, Coachella Valley, and I'm hoping to bring this and look at the incidence and prevalence and really understand the issue down here and hopefully work with our partners to repurpose much of the food in our hospital and our nearby restaurants to increase the influx of food uh, that exists in these uh, desert areas, these food desert areas uh, and pockets that exist around our hospital. And in addition, maybe create these medically tailored meals these medically tailored meals that are important for our diabetic patients or CHF patients. Yeah, I think that's, that's wonderful. I, I was looking more into, you know, before this podcast and speaking with you, I really wanted to delve deeper into the link between nutrition and health outcomes. And I remember reading the statistic that said something like 80% of deaths from cardio uh, coronary artery disease are preventable through diet and lifestyle modica- modifications. And I think currently, like they were saying how in the last decade, the number of Americans with diabetes has doubled. And it's projected that in 2015, one out of three Americans will have diabetes. So clearly nutrition while we're eating has a major, major impact into like the type of diseases we're going to have, like if we're, if we're going to be healthy or not. And through that type of uh, delving deeper, I came across this, um, 
theory of like the three mechanisms of how food insecurity is linked to the into poor health outcomes. The first being that folks are incentivized to buy cheaper and lower nutritional quality of food. Uh, the second being competing demands, like if they're trying to decide if they have enough money to buy food versus if they're going to use that money for medication or housing, which could potentially lead them to living in substandard housing or using less of their medication to try to stretch it out. And, and then, of course, that leads to mismanaging of the chronic disease because they're not um, taking the correct dose that they should. And then the third part of that um, kind of triad of mechanisms is the stress and kind of mental health aspect of, of what it means to really be worrying about where your next meal is coming from. So I think that, like, I think I wish that like medical school kind of gave more of a focus on and really prioritized the nutrition lectures. Because at least for um, some of my friends that I've spoken to at other schools and also my own, we do have like, of course, you know, nutritional lectures, but I don't think it's as robust and formalized as it should be, or, or definitely not as extensive as it should be. Um, what do you what do you think about those or um, the medical school curriculum, for example? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you're 100% right. It's a very multifactorial issue, you know, um, food insecurity is interconnected with all the issues you just mentioned, you know, people, because they don't have access, they will, uh, and they don't have, uh, you know, the income for food, they will look for cheaper alternatives like fast food. And uh, obviously, that's going to transcend and connect to their health and potentially other areas uh, of their life and um, their living situation, etc. And I think when it comes to food, it, uh, I mean, sorry, when it comes to medical school, I think it's, you know, it's hard because, you know, it's arguably it's like drinking from a, wire, a fire hydrant. Some people might describe our medical school education. We're trying to learn all the pathophysiology, anatomy, you know, uh, clinical rotations, you're running around trying to see a patient and learning. And so there is limited time in the four years to learn enough, you know, what we need to know to succeed in residency and, um, you know, and to be a physician. And I think that's is where I, I highly encourage and where I kind of was able to dive a little deeper with my master's in public health, you know, and either um, pre-med students that are thinking about this area, maybe applying to a dual degree program or medical students that would like to learn, take a year off, do an MPH, you know, uh, dive a little bit deeper on these areas of interest. You know, if you're going into residency, you know, maybe uh, go into a program that has these maybe tracks where you can potentially learn a little bit more of social EM or a fellowship. I highly encourage people to, you know, continue exploring this area. We need more emergency physicians, more public health practitioners in this area that are leaders, educators, and, you know, uh, policymakers, you know. So I think it's very important. And it's not something that just obviously is done in four years of an education is a continuous thing. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities depending on where you are to kind of learn more about this, but it's hard. Like you said, it's really hard and nutrition is very limited in our uh, medical school curriculum. Um, and so I think sometimes it's, you know, getting, taking a little extra year, um, you know, it's, is not a bad idea if this is something that you're interested. Absolutely. And I know in our residency curriculum, we are trying to incorporate more of those nutrition lectures. I mean, you're heading that at my current residency. And we talked about it today, how uh, with our ICD-10 codes, uh, including uh, food insecurity as one of those codes. So um, hopefully we'll see a difference. But I do want to know that I haven't really seen any physicians prescribe or direct patients to food resources. When I think of solutions, I think of food pharmacies and food stamps and food banks. Um, as EM physicians, 
how do we address the problem? Are we able to make a difference? How do we make a dent in this global issue? Um, or are there other ways to help patients? Yeah, no, I think, you know, there should be, we should be prescribing a prescription for food. And, you know, when I was a resident and when I was implementing this in my program, and we started screening, I was, you know, writing prescriptions for food. And that was, it was a symbolic prescription, obviously, when where it was resources in the form of a kind of prescription pad to our nearby community programs and leaderships. But I think it's very powerful. Imagine if you screen someone for food insecurity and you're a patient and your doctor is recommending you to these resources and uh, from a prescription standpoint. And so, but beyond that, I think, you know, um, what the other things that we could do as physicians is, you know, learn more about this issue and understand our community partners around surrounding your emergency department, working with our social workers. And it's not that, you know, we have to burden ourselves with more screening tools ourselves and have to be asking these questions. You know, we do have many validated tools out there that we could use. We can uh, train, you know, um, many public health practitioners like, um, medical assistants or nurses, or even our social workers to kind of look out for these um, flags in terms of food insecurity. And as a physician, I think it's powerful where you can have this conversation or even, you know, when you're doing an exam, I've, I've talked about this before. You can say, Hey, do you have enough food to eat? Do you have enough money for your medication or food on the table? And the two simple questions while you're auscultating or pressing a belly can potentially, you know, um, paint a little better picture of your patient. And maybe this is why they're in DK. They're coming in. Maybe they can't afford their diabetes medication. And, um, because they have to make a choice between maybe feeding their kids at home or potentially buying their medication. And so if you're, if you're a father or a mother, you're probably going to decide to feed your kids beyond, you know, buying your own medication. So it's all interconnected. So I think as a physician, you know, I think being aware, first of all, is an important step. Uh, B, uh, maybe learning what tools you have in your hospital. And if you're very motivated, you know, trying maybe to pioneer or kind of um, you know, working with your social workers or team members to see, hey, how can I address these issues? Because at the end of the day, I mean, I think arguably we all went into medical school uh, to become physicians to help people. And this is where I think we could do the most benefit at the end of the day is to kind of really get to the root of the problem of many of our patients, which are some of these social determinants of health. And in terms of successful interventions in the ED, I know in, at Eisenhower, we talk about this hunger vital sign. I would love to hear more about it. If you can talk more about it, just for any resident out there who's listening, who'd like to incorporate it at their own program. Yes. And this, you know, hunger vital sign has been, you know, used and created for a while. And these are two simple questions that have been validated, actually starting the pediatric world, but they've been validated both in the adult world and they're not a new concept. They've, they've been around in the outpatient world. Um, and if you answer yes to, um, to any of these two questions, you're considered positive for food insecurity. You know, we've, when some of my projects, I've taken it to the second level and looked at severity and there's other questionnaires that look at severity, but the two vital questions, very simple within the last past 12 months, we worried whether our food would run out before we got money to buy more. That's one question. And the second question is within the past 12 months, the food we bought just didn't last and we didn't have more money to get more. 
And if you know the patient answers yes to any of those two questions, they're considered food insecure. They have to answer no to both questions to be considered food secure or negative for food insecurity. So it's very quick, very brief. It's a very easy screening tool, and it could potentially, you know, uh, flag someone for a social work consult, you know, and maybe resources that could potentially change someone's life. Are there any other successful interventions that are applicable to like the ED? that you've seen utilized? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's multiple screening tools. In terms of screening tools, there's multiple screening tools out there validated. There's the USDA screening tool that has a set of eight, 10, and I think 14 questions, and that looks at severity. Um, there are a lot of other researchers that are working at uh, screening tools that go beyond food insecurity and look at other social determinants of health, like homelessness, and they look at um, other social factors like education to further quantify what's going on in our emergency departments as a proxy of what's going on in our community. So there is a lot of a, a lot of in terms of tools to screen. Now interventions, there's plenty out there. You know, one of the things that I'm trying to do at Eisenhower is connect our community. Uh, leaders in in terms of restaurant workers and culinary students to be able to repurpose much of the food in our community. Once we screen someone positive for food insecurity in our emergency department, we can refer them to, you know, not only our food banks, but potentially some of our community partners where they're developing or repurposing some of the leftover food into quality meals by culinary students that are, that just doesn't not only just taste good, but looks good, right? And it's pre it's presented in a decent way. And the other concept that I presented to our leadership who was on board is, you know, why don't we repurpose our food in our cafeteria? Hospitals have tons of food waste. Um, and it would be not only cost effectiveness, but it, we'd be doing something for our community. And we can, you know, minimize the waste that we're uh, producing in our hospitals. Um, and then thirdly, with this repurposing is looking and really tailoring, um, you know, with our partners and creating these medically tailored meals, which I think is going to be the future. Hopefully we can repurpose some of this food that is, you know, uh, applicable for CHF or patients. You know, someone's a CHF should probably have a low salt di uh, diet. You know, you don't want to give someone salty foods, you know, that is <laughs> volume overloaded or a diabetic, maybe low sugar meals. And so you know, it's not just only providing an influx of food, but, you know, some quality food. And so the other idea that we're trying to work on, and I think some interventions that I've seen in the past is these food trucks. So another exciting thing is maybe using our community partners, such as their food truck, uh, community leaders to kind of address, you know, food deserts where they can kind of go to places where it's needed the most. And you identify geographically where these food deserts exist using some of our screening tools and some of the tools that exist out there. And we can kind of tailor these food trucks to go to places in the community. Yeah, it seems like there's, you know, some simple, straightforward fixes that because I, you know, it makes so much sense to use the cafeterias like leftover food that's going to go in the trash anyway. So why not use it to benefit the community community and other um, folks who need food? I kind of wanted to touch uh, back on something you had mentioned earlier, because when we're talking about providing resources to patients, I know that we've talked about about like food banks, and I know that there is um, like assistance programs like SNAP or WIC for pregnant women, um, and then SNAP for just the low income. But I was wondering if you could kind of explain what food pharmacies are. I feel like that's a newer term I've heard, and um, I'm not sure if other people have heard that before. So if you could kind of explain what that is and how that kind of fits in. 
Yes, uh, food pharmacies literally are areas where um, kind of like food banks and specifically are areas that are designated with uh, food, particular for patients that are referred from um, either community partners or physicians or emergency departments and they're giving a prescription. It's more of a symbolic thing, I think, for say right now, there's no such thing as real pharmacies for food, but you know, one can hope. But the idea they're pretty much, they function as food banks um, and people literally have either a referral or a doctor's note and they go in there and, and they're screened um, kind of like food stamps, kind of where they work with grocery stores. Uh, and SNAPs and programs like that, um, which have actually a lot of uh, healthcare cost-saving dollars. Yeah, and, and I think this again kind of goes back to something you mentioned in the very first episode where we talked about how, you know, each uh, answer for each community is different. I think maybe, I don't know if you would think like maybe when you when you get to a residency program, if you're at a new job, maybe touching base with the social workers or case managers and seeing what resources are, are already available in your community might be like a good place to start. Or is there, how would you, I guess, go about um, getting involved if you're in a new environment? I think if you're in a new environment is kind of learning who your community partners are um, so that you don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. Maybe the wheel's already there and you just have to add on to it and making it better. A lot of times, for example, when I came here to the Coachella Valley, I, I was learning about all of our partners that exist here, like Fr Frankie's Food Truck like that I mentioned. They're actually uh, trying to address some of these issues in terms of using food trucks. And so I think it's a phenomenal idea to kind of be able to connect those two um, you know, ideas of a food truck and our screening for food insecurity. And they actually reached out to me. And so you know, a lot of times learning your food banks, your community leaders, uh, your policymakers. When it comes to the hospital, I think it, as an emergency physician, is learning what your social workers. You know, are your best advocates because you know not only are they trained in these areas, but they know they, especially if they've been around for a while, they know the community partners that exist, and they might already have a list of tools or a list of resources that they're referring. And I think part of it is just kind of putting in your own seasoning and and using your whatever rules you want to bring in to make the process even better. So what other ways um, are there to get nationally or regionally involved? It sounds like a shameless plug for AEM, but getting involved with AEM, like it's social EM chapter and listening to these podcasts are good first steps. Um, but if we want to have a more global impact, what what can we do to get more involved? A hundred percent. I think, you know, the first step is getting involved with, you know, organizations like AEM, um, you know, the committees like the social EM, public pop, uh, population health committees, there's social impact. Um, there's a lot of organizations out there that are looking at not just food insecurity, but um, also like many of the social determinants of health. And I think, you know, the ways that you could be involved is either being an educator, being a leader, uh, being a researcher, 
um, whatever might be your niche, you know, in terms of, you know, um, your interest, um, explore those and uh, look at your community partners and your organizations. Um, you know, obviously, your first step is listening to podcasts like this and disseminating a lot of the information and learning about what, you know, food prescription is or food insecurity, maybe implementing some of these things in your clinics or your emergency departments and taking it to the next level uh, by producing, you know, some data that your hospital can use to minimize some of these uh, social impacts that uh, your patients are having and potentially addressing a lot of their social needs that will, you know, have uh, cost-saving dollars, you know, and learning more about what a food pharmacy is and how maybe you can set up some of these you know, um, uh, food pharmacies and maybe a system to prescribe, uh, you know, food uh, from your emergency department. That would be ideal. Um, using, you know, a lot of times in the Latino community, uh, they're more receptive with promotoras and, you know, community leaders or religious spiritual leaders that sometimes some of your community partners might be more receptive in terms of listening where they need to go or the importance of nutrition and, uh, you know, the importance of food insecurity. And sometimes they don't understand your patients won't understand that, Hey, you know, getting good quality food is important. And um, it's, you know, it's easier said than done, but I think education is so important and just starting there. Yeah. And, and the kind of understanding again, like how we can make effective change as, you know, future ED physicians, I was reading and I saw that, you know, a number of trials show that education, like the one-on-one -on -one patient education that you provide may or may not provide a huge impact on what people are buying. And it kind of seems like there's more upstream issues, like the roots that the rooted core issues you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. And in particular, I remember, um, just thinking like as a, you know, current fourth year med student, as a future resident doctor, and, and you guys too, I, I feel like all doctors really hope and um, want to believe that the education that they're giving, the screening tools they're utilizing, the resources they're providing are really going to make an impact on it. But when you kind of are faced with these studies of that, it seems to be more of the upstream approaches that are going to kind of overcome food insecurity, like having markets available or having nutritional food that's an actual affordable option compared to the nutritionally poorer options. What can you tell us to keep doctors involved and optimistic about helping address or push forward to a better, more nutritional future? Yeah, no, I think, you know, I see it as an onion. There's multiple layers to this onion, right? And the deeper you get to the core is the idea is the issue, the rooted cause, you know, a lot of times is very difficult to get. And there's many layers that you have to kind of go through. And, you know, obviously the first step is understanding there's an issue. Second step is understanding ways on how you can, you know, solve this issue. And, and in parallel at this time is educating, you know, your future colleagues and, um, your patients and community leaders to kind of buy in to, hey, this is important. And sometimes, unfortunately, some, you know, you just have to, uh, you know, bring in the data and the numbers and and seeing how these studies tied to dollars. And sometimes data equals dollars in healthcare is healthcare savings. And it, this is where the upstream effect. And this is how I think, uh, you know, disseminating this information, providing some of this data will. I, in my humble opinion, will cause a trickling effect in terms of motivating maybe policymakers, maybe 
you know, um, private sector, you know, in terms of um, grocery stores and uh, community partners out there to kind of say, hey, this is maybe an issue that we could have a two prong effect in terms of food insecurity, you know, many you know, uh, restaurants, you know, are motivated because yes, they want to be green. And now there's new laws that saying that they have to kind of donate a certain amount of food. But before that, you know, that like some of the motivation was cost effectiveness. And so it is an upstream battle. Sometimes not everybody is very motivated as we are in terms of, you know, doing what's right for the patient. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to start somewhere and it's hard to kind of, uh, take an eagle's wide approach to it. But I think as long as you start tackling one area that you might be interested in and then moving those pieces together and hopefully having an upstream effect is at the end of the day is what kind of matters, you know. And as we work together, you know, hopefully you work with your partners, you know, all over the US. And as people listen to these podcasts, maybe we could collaborate. And I would love to collaborate with other public health practitioner, future public health practitioners with yourselves, maybe, you know, you will uh, keep moving this, this field of social EM and coming up with new innovative ideas and projects that keeps moving, like you said, this upstream effect. Absolutely. Thank you for all that information. It, you've given us a lot to chew on. Definitely food for thought. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Cisneros, for joining us today to discuss this important branch of social EM. This concludes our second episode on the RSA podcast, Social EM series. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show anytime. And I'm super excited. If anybody has more questions, feel free to, you know, contact me on my Instagram at Dr. Cisneros. Um, and it's always a pleasure to see you both um, and looking forward to more episodes. Thank you everyone for listening with us today. And we hope you really enjoyed it. Please join us for our next episode where we will discuss human trafficking. And if you are interested in hearing from a particular social EM expert or about a social EM topic, please tag us on Twitter or Instagram or even email us at info at aaemrsa.org. Thank you again, and we hope to see you at our next episode. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AAEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with AAEM RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.